most of the people on my team, and this is really true, they're perfectly happy to do the work, to make the rescue, to do something important. And then they come down and nobody says thanks and they get in their car and go home. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. For today's show, I brought on Utah State University professor Scott Hammond, and we talked about search and rescue. Let's give it a listen. Yeah, so I do canine search and rescue, but I also do, that's only about 5% of what we end up doing is using our dogs. I have a a super dog named Boo the Wonder Dog, uh, and um, we've quite literally written books about him. He's such an incredible animal. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But the thing that happened for me that was just life-changing is that because I had a dog, because it was trained, because I'd done it a few, a little bit of search and rescue, they invited me, and I'm, I'm quite a bit older than most people, but they invited me onto the team to do all of the other things that our team does. So I would be one of the older people on the team, quite a bit older than most. Uh, but I just am lucky to have sometimes a front row seat to some really kind and amazing acts and to watch a team perform with high reliability, always getting things right, safe um, and helpful. So with that team and everybody that you work with, what would you say the average age is that you work with? So the average age is probably around 35. I think the youngest person we have is about 25. And the oldest is 75, Uh, but it helps to be young and be able to go up a mountain quickly and be very fit to be in this um, business. Do you ever cross train with people from other counties or states, like do any joint trainings or anything like that? Uh, All the time. In fact, I've been in Iceland, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and all across the U.S. Some of that is me training them on highly reliable teams and lost person behavior. But there's a whole network of training opportunities. And then our team trains once a month. We, we meet on Thursday nights and do business and some classroom training. And then once a month on a Saturday, we do a half day of training. Um, we can get away with training only maybe eight hours a month because we are deployed a lot. We do 120 call-outs a year, and that's a lot of call-outs. Wow. Say that number again. 120. Uh, So that's about one every three days. Now you'd think, oh, you know, how do you manage that? But remember that about half of the call outs you get are resolved in some way before you ever deploy. So you might arrive and then the helicopter lands and they picked them up or something like that will happen. You deploy anyway, you go out anyway, but you're called back and you don't really have to do anything. So there are about, oh, maybe 60 call-outs a year that require us to get out of the car. And um, and there are about 20 or 30 call-outs a year that are very involved. Um, sometimes they're long, prolonged searches that, that take days. Sometimes they're rescues. Uh, we had a plane crash here a few weeks ago uh, that we had to, um, not only did we have to go in and get a survivor and, and, and uh, some other victims out of the plane, but then we had to um, get all of the inspectors safely to the 
aircraft and the FAA people and and the coroner and so it's it's very involved in that kind of work. Wow, 60 a year. Out of all that you've done, is there any that sticks out? All the call-outs you've done, is there one that just sticks out because of how rewarding it was to find somebody and to help them? Uh, you know, there are just so many that I just, it, it it's like it keeps coming at you and keeps coming at you and you almost don't have time to digest it. But I've written a couple of books, some books about this. Uh, one is a fiction, well, one is a fiction book. There are actually two of them out called Finding Caleb. And it's really based on some actual incidents from the, uh, uh, from Search and Rescue. Um, and it's about my dog finds. But the one that sticks out the most for me is, um, oh, golly, about a couple of summers ago, we were hiking up to a place called Stewart Falls because there was a woman who had called in and she twisted her ankle. So it was a minor, non-urgent, um, let's go up and help her out. It's not like we were taking our time, but it was minor and non-urgent. We get uh, two to three minutes away from the falls and another call comes in and it's also at the falls. And it turns out that this young woman was hiking on the cliff by the, or climbing up the cliff by the, beside the fall and fell and she fell on a young boy. And that also knocked an older man down. So now instead of having one uh, victim with just a twisted ankle, we have four victims and two of them are in critical condition. And so, you know, it, it just, you, you sit there and say, what are we going to do now? Um, we don't have, we, did we gear up for this? Did we have, do we have the right equipment? And then minute by minute, everything just came together. Uh, I just think it was our finest hour. It so happened that a medical helicopter was in the area. Um, they uh, offered assistance and came in and and landed nearby. Um, it, it our meanwhile we divided into three teams because one of the subjects wasn't hurt enough that they needed urgent care. We divided into three um, teams and started to treat the subjects, the people who were injured, and the most critical was the young boy. Uh, the the young boy, the pediatric patient, and 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 they were they were doing a procedure on him to because his head was already starting to swell and his we had to get breathing tubes in him and uh, it just so happened that two anesthesiologists uh, from the medical school here in Utah were walking by and came over and said, "Can we help?" That's something that an anesthesiologist does all the time but we don't do very often. And that person was there and willing to help and helped and saved this boy's life. And, you know, we were able to get everybody safely off the mountain to care. We got this young boy to care within an hour, within the golden hour, because the medical helicopter was flying in the air, happened to be nearby, landed, um, and was able to just take him immediately to the children's care hospital. And uh, it was, it was just, you sit there, and say that was a miracle, just every little thing that happened. But the clincher for me was six months later when this young boy came um, to our team meeting and said, thank you. And, you know, he's still dealing with a lot. He's still got a traumatic brain injury and some things that are going to be with him maybe the rest of his life. But uh, it was just so rewarding to to have him describe his courage as he um, hung in there 
you know, it's just something he'd never expect. He wasn't climbing in the wrong place. Somebody else was, and they landed on him. And, uh, and he's been fighting that battle. It's probably still fighting it. Wow. So if that lady never twisted her ankle and you guys wouldn't have happened to be there, it would have taken even longer. And the hell, like you, like you say, all the stars aligned and you can't explain anything but a miracle for it. Oh yeah. And that you're exactly right. And I actually, I helped carry her down and, uh, and she was talking to us and we said, you know, like she'd caused the problem for us to come up and get her. A lot of people do that. They're embarrassed that we have to help them. We love to help them. There's never any shame. There's never any. So we just say, Hey, thanks for getting us out of the house. Uh, we'll do our best to make you comfortable, but we're carrying her down. And she started uh, down that line. And, one of my colleagues turned around and said, you just saved those kids' lives. You saved their lives. You know, you called us and we were here when they needed us. And, uh, and it, yeah, it was just kind of amazing. A whole string of things like that. But I've seen, I've just stunningly seen those kind of miracles. And, um, and they're, they're not miracles of, uh, that are rational necessarily, but they're certainly things you feel. Um, and, and I would be ashamed, a myth if I didn't call them miracles because they, um, are, you can explain it all, you can see it all, but you kind of look at it and say, that is so unlikely. Just, just when everything aligns too perfectly and too timely, it's, it's hard to call it anything else. I would, yeah, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that way. It is just simply that way. And, you know, not, not everything's a happy ending, but, um, but a lot of happy endings. It's fun to see those happy endings. What was probably the most challenging rescue that you went on? Um, well, some of the more challenging ones are not necessarily, or for me are, you know, since I'm a canine person, um, I'm, I'm often out there with one or two other team members looking for somebody who doesn't want to be found. And, and that's hard because it's, we call them despondent uh, or you might hear somebody say suicidal. You don't always know, but um, they're, they're out there to harm themselves and we're looking for them with our, with the dog. And um, there are a couple of things about that miles that the dog kind of feels that um, and he feels a sense of urgency um, let me tell you one story that happened last March, actually. Uh, we got uh, called out to an area where a young man had been missing for three days. His family had looked for him. Uh, other police agencies had looked for him. And um, we were set up in a parking lot area and asked to search. We were first going to search the area that had already been searched, which was and then we were supposed to follow this lake around and thought that he might be on the lake or in the lake. And um, we left the parking lot with my dog and his nose goes up, you know, into the air. And it's amazing with these dogs when they put their nose up because they're looking, they're, they're looking for scent. But when they put their nose up, they've got some scent. And they're trying to figure out where it's coming from. And so he uh, followed his nose and we followed him and, it took about 20 minutes and we found the, the body of this young man. And it, it, it was, it, it's hard, but it's also sacred. And uh, the dog um, 
feels that. And he's also usually gets a reward, but he didn't want a reward. He was very, very sad. What breed of dog are you using? Uh, This is a golden retriever. And so he's very empathetic and, um, and really attunes into human emotions. But Miles, the thing that just absolutely amazed me that came after that, um, we went back to the parking lot where we'd been deployed and my dog, Boo, his his name, um, you know, he's the one I write the books about, but he's tugging on the lead. He's tugging on the lead. He wants to, to go somewhere. And I'm looking at where does he want to go? And he wants to go on the other side of the parking lot where there are a group of people. And usually we just try to be very professional and, you know, leave, uh, the public alone, we don't have time to talk to the public. And if it's family members, we want, you know, paid therapists, victim advocates to talk to them. And, but he kept wanting to tug over and go to this group. And I asked my, the deputy I was with, I said, you know, who are those people? And he said, that's the family. And, uh, I said, can I let my dog go over to them? Cause he just wants to go. He he's pulling, you know, he doesn't usually do that. So I let him off the lead and he ran, walked over to this family and, uh, there was a young woman there and she was crying um, and he went up to her and just sat at her feet and she just looked at him and buried her head in his fur and cried and he licked her face and it was the most tender scene. And then one by one, he went to each of the family members and did the same thing. And I have just never, ever seen a moment like that with a dog um, he just, he just was tuned in to these people's and it was comforting him too, because he was feeling the darkness of that difficult situation. Uh, needless to say the families, you know, the family are now friends. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've been invited to, to their home. Uh, they really like my dog better than they like me, but we're all friends, you know? And, um, and, you know, that's the kind of opportunity I, I say it is to, to be part of search and rescue. So he lives with you then full time, everything. He's your dog. Yeah, he's my dog and I trained him. Uh, he, uh, but I say I train him and I take credit for that, but you have to understand that it's just in him to do this. Um, all I'm doing is waking him up to that. Uh, it's fun to be a canine handler because the dog really does all the work and I get all the credit. Um, so you, you just follow behind him. That's awesome. I love that boo. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. Well, it, it, it's still every time I tell it and I don't tell it very often because it's such a sacred thing, but, um, every time I tell it, I'm moved. I just wonder, did I really, did that really happen? You know? <laughs> Uh, it's because it was just so amazing. Speaking of boo and using these things, what technologies have come out that have just significantly helped your missions and finding people? Well, oh, that's a great question. That was really a good question. Of course, cell phones changed everything. Uh, 20 years ago when not everybody carried a cell phone, uh, we were doing a lot more with dogs, but we don't need them as much anymore because we can, ping the cell phone and find out where they are. So usually with dogs, we're looking for people who either don't have a cell phone or have a a battery, a dead battery, or um, don't want to be found. 
And um, the, so we don't do as much with dogs. But the big thing, the really amazing thing that's changed in the last few years is called CalTopo, but it's a topographical map that it interfaces with your cell that you can call up on your cell phone, interfaces with your GPS. And you can look at the map and not only see um, the map and where things are, but you can see where all the other searchers are or all the other rescuers are. And then you can enter in where the subject, where you're, if you're going to rescue somebody and you know where they are, you can put that on the map. You can, uh, it has an interactive program that allows you to see the medical helicopter fly onto the map and land just everything that way. So it's very high tech and very useful and works really well. And I think most search and rescue teams around the country are going to use, are using that now. Um, and it, it, it's also, if you can imagine safety, you know, it allows you to just keep track of your, your people who are on the mountain, where they are and make sure that they're safe. What about like infrared cameras or anything like that? Are you guys using that at all? Yes. Um, we, uh, had a training, uh, three days ago, four days ago, I guess it was on Saturday. Um, in, you know, it's winter now and, uh, we did a training, uh, where our drone team, we have a newly formed drone team was, well, we are all looking for a lost person. It was a training. So we, they weren't really lost, but the drone team found them first with infrared. And that was exactly what I had hoped for. I think that's a wonderful technology and really helps a lot, uh, in some kinds of searches. The truth of the matter is you need low tech and, and no tech, you need high tech and low tech and whatever it is. It sometimes just takes um, lots of boots on the ground and lots of people to find somebody and a lot of luck. But sometimes the technology gives you a shortcut. Um, infrared doesn't always help, but it helps. It can help. Yeah, I uh, I had an experience a couple of years ago. I was living in Kansas City. And just like what we have now here in Arkansas, it's it's below zero. And it has been for a long time. I remember waking up in the middle of the night. It was like one in the morning and there was a helicopter flying over my house with the light. And it wasn't, it wasn't search and rescue, but it was a police, but there was a missing three-year-old boy out in the cold. And so it ended well so that, but they were using infrared because of how cold it was. It would have been so much easier to spot the little boy with the infrared cameras they never saw anybody, and it turns out that the little boy had crawled under a bed and fell asleep, and they found him <laughs> under the bed. <laughs> so that was yeah. one of those good endings um, that they had. But yeah, the infrared, that's why I asked about that one, because of that experience. Well, and actually, when we get called out on a similar kind of a thing, our first thing is, can we search the house? No, 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 we've already searched the house. Can we search the house? No, 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 the police have already searched the house. No, no, no. Can we search the house? You know, because um, you want to look behind, you want to look in the trunk of the car. You want to look behind the washer and dryer. You know, you want to look everywhere um, because it's likely, the statistics show, it's likely they're still in the house. It's one of those things, too. I don't know. I, I had a cousin who they did a big uh, search for him as well when he was a kid. And his mom went down to pray. And she got uh-huh. done praying and she was like, look behind the couch while the whole town is scouring the, the town for this boy. She went and looked behind the couch and he had fallen asleep behind the couch. So yeah, that was another one that ended well. 
but yeah and you're happy for that this is the one thing people don't understand is that you know the police chief doesn't come in and put his uh hands on his hips and scold you for that at all or get the kid in trouble or make you pay for it or anything like that everybody's happy when it's a happy ending like that even if uh it's it's hey we should have found him we should have never really done this you know uh, we are never, I mean, we are never upset when somebody calls us out and we're not needed. Exactly. It's, it's always, it feels good to be a hero, right? I guess in, in that situation, because without you guys, what would have happened, right? It, it, you know, you're right. It does to some extent, but when most search and rescue teams, and this is part of the team dynamic issue, most search and rescue teams, most firefighting teams, um, they look for people who don't want to be heroes. Uh, they usually make better team members. And ultimately, if you want to be a uh, hero, if you want to be the one that stands out, you want to be the one that um, then as time wears on, you're not going to be the one we can rely on because you're in it for yourself. And most of, the, most of the people on my team, and this is really true, they're perfectly happy to do the work to make the rescue, to do something important. And then they come down and nobody says thanks and they get in their car and go home. And, uh, and then on the news, it says rescue crews from, they don't even tell the name of the, you know, the, they don't even tell the name of our team. Um, you know, they just, uh, and it's fine. It's really fine. Um, that, that doesn't bother me at all. Most of the dog, the fines that I've had, where my dog was the one, I was the one with the dog that found that shows up in the paper and it just says it was found. And then it lists the, the different agencies that maybe brought people to the, to the search. And I think that's the way it should be. I, I, I don't want credit. It's everybody's, everybody's working. I just happened to be the one who was kind of lucky that day or in the right place for the right time that day uh, to step forward. So, yeah, hero, being a hero, it's not really about being a hero, um, but it is immensely satisfying. That's awesome. You think of it that way, too. What advice would you give people who are hikers or whatever and they get lost? What what type of things can they do to prevent these types of situations and scenarios happening? Well, you know, a few years ago, and we're actually going to reissue it this year, I wrote a book called Lessons of the Lost, where I interviewed 120 people who had survived being lost in the wilderness. And, you know, the first thing I learned is that it, it, when you're lost, it's completely mental. It is not about geography. We always think, oh, you know, you don't know where you are. Well, being lost is about not knowing how to know where you are. And that's a different kind of psychology. It's not like, oh, if I just brought my compass, I'd be able to figure it out. It's, I, I don't have a compass. I don't know how to use a compass. I don't know how to use the GPS. My batteries are dead. I don't know how to know where I'm going. And so that is a different kind of lostness. And that's that can be rather profound. So, you know, the first thing is um, calm down, sit down. Um, take a deep breath and um, and kind of get a sense of your situation. Uh, this happened to me once. I was hiking in the Uenas, um, a snowstorm. I was way up high in the mountains, uh, maybe at 11,000 feet. And I was hiking down and uh, a snowstorm came in. It was the first storm of the winter. 
a whiteout. I could not see where I was going. I just couldn't see where I was going. And I passed this tree on the way up when I was hiking up the mountain. I'd passed this really unusual tree, and now I'm hiking down, and I passed this unusual tree. Except the funny thing was that the tree was on the same side both times. And, I, and my reaction was, well, who moved the tree? That's weird. You know, uh, golly, did I see it wrong? You know, all of these things. And after I walked a few hundred feet, I thought, no, I'm going the wrong direction. The reason that tree's on the same side, I'm going up again, you know, but I couldn't tell in the whiteout. And, and so that denial was flooding my body. I was just, my mind, I didn't want to be wrong. I didn't think I could be wrong, but I was wrong. And so as I sat there, I, I just decided to sit down under a tree. Snow's coming down like crazy. Found a patch where the snow wasn't hitting. Had a drink of water, had an energy bar, took a deep breath, realized that if I had to, I could survive, you know, that'd be okay. So that kind of took the edge off the fear. And then I uh, said, well, if I'm, if I went, if I'm going the wrong, I ought to be able to find my tracks in the snow again. And so sure enough, I went slightly up the hill to the right and there were my tracks going down, you know. And, and I'd looped around and gotten going the wrong direction somewhere. And so I figured that out. I followed my tracks down, followed where I'd looped around, kept going down the right way, and pretty soon broke out of the clouds, and I was okay. Uh, but it's amazing the stories we tell ourselves when we're lost, <laughs> you know, the lies. It reminds me of, I recently read a story about a lady who was hiking the Appalachian Trail, and she got lost. And she was lost for so many days and nobody could find her and they did this big long search and then it was like a year later they found her and she was only 3,000 feet from the trail I don't know if you've heard that story before but it, it, it it's one of those things where and she was writing in her journal and she was like I have no idea where I am tell my husband this 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 and she was 3,000 feet away which is really heartbreaking to you know to read that and to hear about that but yeah, I like that advice. Just kind of sit down and and kind of think of it differently and try to go about it different and don't listen to those lies. Well, in, in her case, um, one of the things that you saw in the journal that she wrote was apologies and shame. And one of the things that you feel when you're lost, all of the people that I interviewed reported some feeling of shame that I'm embarrassed, it shouldn't have happened, it's all my fault. And that is so toxic. That is one of the forces that blinds us is that shame. Uh, and you know this when people are lost in life and in work, when they start feeling the shame and the, then they stop communicating. Then they stop thinking the problem through in creative ways. Uh, they start going back to the historically bad behaviors that they may have had or destructive behaviors. And, um, and if you can just let go of that shame and say, look, I've got a problem. I need to solve it. Let's figure this out in a calm and rational way. It makes all the difference in the world. I've gotten lost before too, up the mountains, um, when we were hunting and it's scary too, when, when you get off the trail, right? We were, we were going through scrub Oak. Um, we had no idea where we were. Uh, it was dark, but luckily there was a, it was nighttime and we were actually closer than we thought, but 
you do get negative really fast and it just it's kind of a down downhill from there and so it's good it's good to remember to stay positive and keep trying and keep going yeah we had a search a few years ago in a similar kind of environment in some scrub oak it was a mountain biker and he'd gone out for a a ride on a sunday afternoon and it was kind of october where it wasn't really summer but it had been kind of a summery type day and then it was going to turn winter that night and uh so it was really kind of uh difficult but anyway he's uh out there his bike bike breaks down he doesn't know where he is he's wandering around in the oak and we looked for him for three or four hours and then um that one of our uh, um um we call him single track team members finds him uh, by calling out his name, by calling his name uh, and, and they, he responds and they get him back up on the trail. He was a few feet from the trail. He was like 20 feet from the trail, but he couldn't find it in the dark. And, um, and he's fine and everything's good. And they start walking him down and they said they came up over the rise and he could see the city below him and the city lights. And this man, you know, who is, a well-known man in the community and, and, uh, you know, it just starts to weep, just starts to cry. And they say, you okay? You know, are you hurt? Are you injured? You know, uh, what's going on? And, and he said, you don't understand. He said, I was sitting there in that bushes. I thought I was going to die. It was darkness all around me. I was in the pit of despair. And then a stranger called my name. And he said, that was the first thing is I hear a stranger, a strange voice call my name. And then kindly lead me to the trail. And then the trail leads me to the light. And he said, when you have an experience like that, you cannot not cry. But I think in work life and the wilderness, we've all been there, haven't we, Miles? I mean, you, you've been lost in the wilderness, but you've probably also had some career up and downs and some life up and downs. And so have I, you know, uh, I mean, I went to junior high. That was, you know, I was lost, <laughs> you know. We've all had this psychology of lostness play on us. You never know whether that's going to happen. For me, I had a a high school teacher that um, was just a really great teacher. And then I graduated from high school and my parents moved overseas and I had a job and I didn't like it and I quit and I wasn't doing well in college and my girlfriend dumped me. And I was just sitting in, in the pit of despair. And it's six months after I graduated from high school, this guy calls me up. And just says, hey, you want to get together for lunch? I go meet him at a place for lunch, and we talked for a while. And that was, I don't know how he knew that I i was lost, but he knew. And that it was that was the last time I ever saw him. Um, but um, it, it was just, he saved me. You know, he, he kept me from going down further. All of us are kind of like on a search and rescue, helping other people who are lost and everything it's you don't have to be on an actual search and rescue team to go out and find somebody who needs that help and and who's lost and in despair oh that's absolutely true and that's also true in the wilderness that almost half of all search and rescue incidents are solved by the people involved before search and rescue gets there so before we officially close why don't you list off the, the your books one more time so that those who are listening that might be interested, what what books are you writing again or have you written? Well, I've got a book called Lessons of the Lost, which is a nonfiction book about lost person behavior in work, life, in the wilderness, Lessons of the Lost. 
uh, all available on Amazon. And then this year, I've got two fiction books out that are both really for young adults, though most of the reviewers are adults. Uh, the first one's called Finding Caleb. The second one is called Finding Asher. And there'll be a third, fourth, and fifth one the publisher wants more. Um, and they're all about my dog and, and dog finds. Men, if you are in the market for some community service and looking to give more, may I recommend looking into Search and Rescue? It's not for everybody. Not everybody can do it. Like Scott was saying, you're going to be hiking a lot. You're going to be doing a lot of things that are going to be physically demanding. But if you are able, I would recommend looking into it. I want to thank Scott for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We are going to end this one with another Manly Mystery Sound. Let me know if you can guess it. 